1: NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash
2: earnings. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now.
3: This is Bloomberg Intelligence. Super
4: wants to be the Amazon of retail, of e-commerce. The
5: Disney Plus service might actually end up benefiting Netflix.
3: In-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries.
5: Capital return is the key story for the U.S. banks. The
6: telcos naturally are moving into content distribution. I think it's a good move. Bloomberg Intelligence
3: with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio.
7: Over the next hour, we're going to dig inside the big business stories impacting Wall Street and the global markets.
4: Each and every week, we provide in-depth research and data on some of the 2,000 companies and 130 industries our analysts cover worldwide.
7: Today, we're going to take a look at the market potential for premium pet food and see how much room Fresh Pet has actually to grow.
4: Plus, the Moderna valuation puzzle. How much is the MRNA actually worth?
7: But first, let's take a bite of the Big Apple. So Apple has a ton of free cash flow, and I mean a ton. So, what are they going to do with it? What are the actual options here? Uh, Rob Schiffman, a Bloomberg Intelligence technology analyst who loves and covers the credit market, uh, joins us now. So, Rob, perspective. How much money is Apple sitting on? How much are they making? What are they going to do with it?
8: Well, uh, what a what a wonderful story for me to talk about from the credit side. It's, it's really <laughs> hard to get this wrong. Um, it's sort of like you know, I'm lucky. I've got a big, thick head of hair, and when I get my hair cut. It doesn't make a difference how short it is, because it grows back like weed so quick, quickly, and that's like Apple's cash flow. Wow, that was the best on, analogy yeah, I've just,
7: ever heard. Yes. My hair's uh, so awesome, it, it's like Apple's cash flow.:
8: <laughs> Yeah, definitely hair made for radio. Um, so Apple is, 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 has once, aga- once again taken cash above 200 billion. They've got 204 billion of cash on the books, and they've taken j- yet another enormous leap in terms of, of free cash flow. Over the last 12 months, they generated $90 billion of free cash flow. So the, the amount of flexibility that they have is not just big, but it's getting bigger. It's getting bigger faster. And quite frankly, they have fewer things to do with their money. You know, they're stuck in this regulatory morass right now, uh, along with names like Amazon and Google. And they just, they don't have the ability to go and write a $50 billion check to buy another business. Mm-hmm. So The plan is to pour the money back into your own business organically, and with all the extra cash that you have, give it back to shareholders. And they've been doing that in mass. They've actually set up a target for their balance sheet, where they want to be net cash neutral. That means having the same amount of cash as they do debt. The problem is, they've got $83 billion more cash than they do debt, so it's going to take a long time. I'm thinking at least five years to get to that cash neutral position.
4: All right, here's the rub I have with Apple and their balance sheet, Rob. I look at a dividend yield of less than 1%. Why don't they step up and pay a 3 or 4% dividend yield? What are they? Why won't they do that?
8: Yeah, listen, they could and they continue to raise their dividend. Their annual dividend now is going to be a little bit over $16 billion. You know, the reality though is, you know, the more shares you buy back, you know, you pay less out in dividends because there's less shares. Even if you raise your, your dividends per share, it doesn't go up nearly as much as you would think. You know, ultimately, having excess flexibility for a technology company really does matter. You know, again, on the flip side of having so much cash, they've taken advantage of debt markets perhaps better than anybody else. Now, they have $122 billion of debt. And at some point, if you're giving away more cash than you are – Bringing in, you know, what happens in five or six years if the tenure rate is not 160, uh, but it's 360 or 560? And I think maintaining that sort of financial flexibility and not having a fixed payout, you know, if, if you're talking about tripling the size of Apple's dividend, you know, you're talking about almost fifty billion dollars a year, and that's half of their free cash flow. So I don't think they need to be that aggressive, quite frankly that buying back stock or paying dividends for Apple is not what moves the equity needle. Growing the top line is what moves the equity needle. There's been an argument for years and years and years that their ability to grow their top line, it's just gonna run out. It's the law of large numbers. We haven't gotten to that point. You know, They're gonna generate $350 billion of revenues this year. Mm-hmm. That's a 28% growth rate. You know, for all the Apple naysayers, um, they have been able to find incremental products services, hardware, um, and I think that there's a whole slew of things that are out there uh, for them to continue to, to, to grow that top line, and that's what's going to move the stock. When you have a $2 trillion stock, paying a 3% dividend yield doesn't make a difference. And if they wanted to go out and borrow another $100 billion, they could do that pretty easily. But how is that going to change Apple's valuation? I don't think it does. So you know, the benefit of Apple's cash flow is that um, they could pour it back into, into their business um, and they, this phrase has been used a, a lot, whether it's Steve Jobs or Abraham Lincoln. You know, the best way to predict the future is to invent it. You know, that's how Apple ends up um, creating their own future: is pour the money back into the business and, and continue to surprise people on the top line.
7: Can I ask the really <laughs> weird question to a credit analyst? Where I'm from, if I had 112 billion dollars of debt, like no one would be like, "Good job!" Like in the corporate credit world why is certain companies with a certain credit rating having that much kind of debt? How is, why is that a good thing based on their cash flow, too?
8: Well, it's all about cost of capital. And their weighted average cost of capital on an after-tax basis is effectively zero. I mean, there's a fair argument, again, to ask, why don't they double the amount of debt that they have versus why do they have so much debt? Now, debt debt is relative. It's relative to your revenues, EBITDA, and cash flow. They're... they're their weighted average fixed cost of the of, of a coupon is around two and a half percent. In this low rate environment, there's a pretty fair argument that they should be borrowing more. But mm-hmm. but the reality is they don't have enough to do with that. Cash if meeting if, if needing a a net cash neutral target is their is, is their goal. Remember, if you borrow ten billion dollars, it doesn't change that goal because it just puts ten billion dollars of cash back on the books. So from a, a borrowing perspective, raising money doesn't doesn't really help their balance
4: sheet.
7: Thanks, Rob. Really good to talk to you, uh, Rob Schiffman. I'm Bloomberg Intelligence Technology Analyst.
4: Coming up on the program, we dig into the rapid growth of the exchange-traded product market.
7: And you're listening to Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. You can access Bloomberg Intelligence through BI Go on the Terminal. I'm Alex Steele.
4: And I'm Paul Sweeney. It's 13 minutes past the hour, and this is
3: Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. All
4: right, let's talk about the global exchange-traded product market. It's now surpassed $400 billion in inflows in 2021, just an exploding market. We can do that with Athanasios Sarofegas. Athanasios, thanks so much for joining us here. The global exchange-traded product market, tell us what it is and how investors are using it.
9: Yeah, Sure. So, uh, if we look globally, uh, you know, the US, Europe, Asia Pacific, uh, we're at about almost $9 trillion in assets in, in global. Uh, we call them ETPs uh, because it can mean things like ETFs, ETNs, et cetera. So, it's just easier to call them ETPs. But what's uh, pretty astonishing this year, and this is going to sound like an outrageous number, I don't think it's inconceivable that we could see a trillion dollars of inflows into the market globally. And if we look at just the US alone, we're approaching $350 billion, and it's only you know, just the beginning of May. So just given the current pace of the market, not only in the U.S., but Europe is having very uh, rapid success, the Asia-Pacific market as well. So just based on how the market's been performing, the flows that are coming in, I think we could hit $10 trillion by the end of the year. And it it's obviously sounds like a big number, but when you look at it percentage-wise of, of other managed fund assets, it's still a relatively small Part of the market. It's a little bit bigger mm-hmm. here in the US. So ETFs are about 20% of all managed fund assets, much smaller in Europe, less than 10%, about the same in, uh, in Asia. So despite these really uh, large numbers, uh, it's still a relatively small part of the, uh, the managed fund universe.
4: Hey, Alex, can I ask one more question? Here? Yeah. Because this is, is going to be the, the dumb question of the day. Uh, what is the difference between ETP and ETF?
9: Yeah, so that's a good question. So it
4: really, the ETP...
9: No one said it was I was like, it's going to be the best question yeah. all day. <laughs> the ETP, and it gets a little bit nuanced, and it it just has to do with the regulators and the way the way they want to call things. And what's actually interesting is in Europe, they're a little bit more sh- strict with the with the nomenclature. So uh, an, e- an ETP could be anything like an exchange-traded fund, an exchange-traded note, right? So what they want to do is, when we just say ETF in the U.S., it could actually mean a couple different things. So what they're trying to aim for in the U.S. is actually to make the, the naming convention similar to Europe. It just it, So, it, for example, an exchange trading note is a note. It's not actually a product that's physically backed by the securities. It's very easy to just sort of get lost and just call everything an ETF just in, you know, in the spirit of being precise. We just like to call them ETPs, which can hmm. encompass a lot of different things under that umbrella.
7: That's a good point, though, because don't they all have different fees, too? Like, so if I was looking at this universe, like, where are the expensive ones, where are the cheapest ones, like, what are, what's actively managed, that kind of thing?
9: Yeah, exactly. So, uh, and other, you know, some use leverage, right? So is it fair to say I have a 3x levered product? I'm calling it an ETF. And that's being put alongside, like, a physically replicated S&P 500 ETF. So what the industry has been trying to do is at least divide it up a little bit so an investor has a little bit of a of – a, uh, is able to better dissect these products and saying, you know what, yeah, we're, we're calling them ETFs, but they're actually all quite different. The fees can be different. The, the structure of the product is different. Even the way they're being taxed is different. So it's just – Europe is actually – Um, a little bit more ahead in the naming conventions and being able to segregate products. So I I think that as time goes on and we see things like crypto products come to the market, uh, Mm -hmm. I think the U.S. would probably adopt a similar model and we'll see sort of the naming conventions uh, be segmented a little bit more.
4: Who's buying these products? Is it, I'm thinking, you know, retail versus institutional? Has it become an institutionalized product? I would say in the U.S., which is Of that number I mentioned, U.S.
9: is is the biggest market, 70% of it. It's it's 50-50, and I'd say the retail portion of it has really gathered steam this year from things like thematic etfs right so you you've heard about the growth of funds like arc uh you know gaming etfs uh, cannabis focused etfs a lot of that has actually been driven towards the retail market when it's about 50 50 split in the u.s but there's a lot of interesting things that are happening when you look at the issuers even the way they're pricing these etfs so what i mean is their price handle. So they're not launching an ETF that will cost you $100 a share. They're launching it at $20 a share. And what I've noticed is over time, they're a being, they're appealing more and more to the retail market. They're they're launching these sort of lower priced ETFs. They're they're branching out more into the thematic spaces because they've actually found out that this is actually a really important and and fast growing market. So instead of going to say the traditional channels trying to target financial advisors institutions, which they which they still do focus on, a lot of these new ETFs are going straight to the Robinhood platforms uh, and they're targeting this market specifically.
7: Do you get the impression then that there's money coming out of other assets into ETPs or if they're going after like the Robinhood investors, like you just said, is this totally new money that's being allocated to the market?
9: Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. So the other thing, the other opposite side of this equation is the outflows that we're seeing in mutual funds, right, in traditional Mm -hmm. active funds. Uh, So and it's interesting now with potentially this this Biden tax uh, plan that could get passed um, would you know, tax and capital gain distributions, this is actually going to be an impediment for traditional mutual funds. So there is some money moving out of mutual funds into ETFs, but especially with these new thematic funds, these are new allocations. This is new money coming into the market.
4: I guess what I do know about exchange traded funds is it's all about expenses, lower expenses for uh, the investor. Is that still very much the case? And is that still the primary or a primary driver for funds flows? It is we call it, that's the mother of all trends. It's anywhere you look in any market, doesn't matter if it's the U.S.
9: or Europe, it's just cost compression. It is flows going towards the cheapest products. And why I think this will accelerate, especially globally, is the U.S. has really been the leader in adopting fee-based models in, for how these advisors are being paid for their clients. So instead of being paid on commissions, they're being paid as a percentage of assets, which naturally will gravitate Them towards buying the cheapest product. A lot of the fee based model adoption hasn't really started yet in Europe. It's starting. So I'm sure if we would have put a chart of the number of fee based accounts and ETF assets, they're going to correlate very strongly. So I think as you see other regional markets start to adapt more of the fee based structure, that move towards low cost products is only going to accelerate. But you're already seeing this trend perk up in the other regional markets. Mm But in the U.S., For sure, that is still the biggest trend. You know, we talk about the thematics and the Kathy Woods of the world, but everyone sort of seems to ignore that Vanguard is still taking in more money than anyone, right? So you sort of have this interesting barbelling that's happening that people are allocating very conservatively with low-cost traditional beta products, but you do have some people going on the other end of the spectrum that are going – after some of these higher fee thematics, where I think it it could be very difficult to stand out sort of in the middle of the road. Either you have to be really cheap core beta, or you have to be really different, high conviction, high turnover ideas. And it seems that investors are pairing these two. Um, But overall, cost is still the biggest trend of all.
4: Our thanks to Bloomberg Intelligence Exchange of Funds Analyst Athanasios Sourfegas.
7: All right, coming up on the program, clean eating isn't just for humans. We're going to look at the market for premium pet food next.
4: You're listening to Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. You can access Bloomberg Intelligence via B.I. Go on the terminal. I'm Paul Sweeney.
7: And I'm Alex Steele. It's 25 minutes past the hour. And this is Bloomberg.
0: Schwab Trading is now powered by Ameritrade.
1: Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com/slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank, member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time.
3: This is Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio.
4: Over here, each and every week at this time, tapping into our Bloomberg Intelligence analysts covering some 2,000 companies and 130 industries worldwide.
7: So, pets. Mean everything, right? Like, if you don't have any money, you're still going to buy your pet food. Do you have a pet? I do not. You do. Okay, so he doesn't know. But <laughs> no matter what happens, you're always going to help give your pet the best stuff, particularly that organic-y, really good for you pet things. Uh, so, what does that mean for a company like Fresh Pet? Uh, joining us now is Diana Rosera Pena, an equity analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, who, cons- who covers consumer staples. Um, so, what is Fresh Pet? Tons of brands out there. How does Fresh Pet distinguish?
5: Yes. So basically, their proposition is to um, allow you to give your pet uh, natural, and organic products. It's it's it differs from the kibbles that you will find a dried uh, dog food that you will find in the pet food aisles. Uh, this is more they they store their products in refrigerators that are at the end of the pet food aisles at mass merchants and uh, grocery stores and pet stores and the like and and you're right it what distinguishes them is that their proposition is basically you're serving your dog something similar, something that you oh, might boy. quote unquote eat. Um, so, um, I mean, I, I don't recommend trying it, but I have heard people trying the product and see how how they like it. I, I, I'm well, not sure. Because cat
7: food can be made of like ash and stuff, like it's gross. <laughs> yeah. So, like, yes. I don't blame you for why. I mean, I had a cat. I, I had three. That's just full disclosure. I don't want to feed them all that ash stuff
5: yes exactly well this is uh you know chicken vegetables and uh they have a few factories in in the united states that they they cook their products and they package them and you know they send it to their refrigerators so all
4: right diana in your research note uh you say fresh uh, pet sales can grow by 6x by 2025 crushing goals what's going to drive their sales growth the market can't be growing anywhere near that
5: well, uh they can't keep their products in in the sh- on the shelf. So, uh there's definitely a lot of demand for their products. Uh they are going to be increasing advertising fairly soon. Um, you know, pet humanization is a thing. Um Yeah. It's a thing. You- yes, it's a thing. It is- Oh, it boy. is a thing, uh, <laughs> definitely, particularly after, you know, when with the pandemic, that adoption rates have increased substantially. So definitely those new pet owners, they, they want the best for their pets. And, uh, you know, that is definitely going to drive uh, greater adoption. We think that um, household penetration is going to increase significantly. And the buying rate, which is like the average of, of spending an owner will spend on, on fresh pad will increase, uh, a- about the same rate that it has increased in the in the past five years, which is in the mid-single digits. So that is definitely going to drive this the demand on the on the on the product. And obviously, they have a few um, expand capacity operational uh, capacity expansion projects that are going to come in line in the, over the next couple of years. So that is definitely going to allow them to be able to serve a great uh, you know a greater number of households.
4: How big is this market? Growing? Growing is, is the kind of the organic, healthy pet food market, is that, is that growing at the expense of kind of the Alpos of the he world? He so
7: does not believe it. I can hear it <laughs> in his voice. It's like, D- really? You sure?
4: What about my, my good old Alpo? I mean, what's going on? What's wrong with that?
5: Absolutely, I think there there is you know those trends. We we love our pets, probably I will argue even more than our kids. So um, you know they're they're part of the family, and that is definitely going to drive uh, spend over the next few years for sure.
7: Um, do other countries love their pets as much?
5: <laughs> well, we are the biggest um, suckers. The- <laughs> yes, we're, we are. We're the biggest market, um, you know. So, so it, it, it's definitely a, a good idea that any pet product will start here. There's definitely um, other opportunities overseas. Um, you know, this company actually is in the UK and it's in Canada, and and they do mention that there are similar trends. But yes, the US is where we're you know, where the expansion is. Is there a
4: capacity problem for this company? You said that they're flying off the shelves and things. Can they keep up with the demand?
5: They actually have not been able to, and that has been a short-term problem. Uh, We should be able to see better um, improving out-of-stocks, Starting second quarter, actually, they mentioned in the last call. They mentioned that April has been uh, has been improving. We expect better performance on that on that aspect on the second half of the year. And again, with the three projects that they will have coming live over the next, I would say, twelve to eighteen months, then you'll see capacity catching up with demand substantially. And and you know, being able to meet that.
7: Diana, (laughs) thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. Uh, Diana Rosero-Pena, a Bloomberg Intelligence Consumer Staples Research Analyst.
4: Coming up on the program, we dig into the fair value for MRNA pioneer Moderna.
7: You're listening to Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. You can access Bloomberg Intelligence through BI Go on the Terminal. I'm Alex Steele.
4: And I'm Paul Sweeney. It's 39 minutes past the hour, and this is
3: Bloomberg This is Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio.
7: To look at the winners of the pandemic. You have to take a look at the vaccine makers. And of all the vaccine makers, it's Moderna and Pfizer that have by far come out ahead of all the other guys, in part because of this mRNA vaccine that has changed the game uh, when it comes to these kind of shots. Joining us now to look at the stock and what it means for further upside is Bloomberg Intelligence Pharmaceutical Analyst John Murphy. John, just taking a look at Moderna's stock, for example, what's reflected currently in that valuation?
10: Yeah, hi. It's a great, great question. I think a lot of people are maybe a little bit confused when looking at it. The, the shares are up seventy percent year to date. You know, even if you go back to February last year, it was only seven billion valuation. Today it's seventy. So I think looking at the valuation, there that there are three components to look at. One obviously is the pipeline technology. One is the uh, sorry the platform technology. One is the pipeline itself. And the other one is, is the actual vaccine. And, and maybe the, it's the vaccine where perhaps there, there, there's a lot of misunderstanding and maybe a lot of confusion about what has been ordered, what hasn't been ordered. And therefore, you know, what sort of value, if you like, is reflected in today's share price for it.
4: All right, John, is Moderna a COVID-19 stock story or is there more to it? And once, you know, presumably, hopefully we get to the other side of this, we get to the other side of Moderna as well.
10: Yeah, that's a good, good, good question, Paul. So I think the way people look at it today, they think it's all about COVID. Give you some, give you some uh, clear numbers on it. Our view is in around the 70 billion of value today, we believe about 50 billion of that resides for the COVID vaccine alone. And the other 20 billion is, is in the technology. Now, today, there's probably not much more going to be reflected in the technology until people start to see that pipeline really develop. But, but just looking at the 50 billion, that 50 billion is really quite interesting, actually, because if you start to then look and say, OK, let's look and see what are consensus actually factoring into their numbers over the, over the next five years. If you did that and if you discounted back to today, can you come up with a sort of multiple you're paying for the shares? Well, consensus is suggesting that you're probably paying around 2.7 to 3 times income over the next five years in today's share price. That may or may not appeal as an investor to you. However, and maybe this is the interesting side of it, the consensus numbers are not really indicating anything for booster dosing. And and as you guys know well, and Alex, I know you speak with with Moderna a lot and you've spoken with the other companies in the space. They're talking a lot about booster dosing, and in fact Mm -hmm. we're actually seeing contracts being signed with countries right now here. So if you look at it slightly differently, if you're looking to say, well, let's say you're going to get a booster um, dose every year for the next five years, that everybody over 16 in just high-income countries get that, and if Moderna got a 40% market share, then actually that income justifies today's share price alone and anything from other mm-hmm. countries or anything after 2025 or anything from that emerging pipeline that comes for free
7: wow okay that says something so do they have enough money because they're coming at it from a very different position than pfizer obviously um they have enough yeah. money for all this
10: yeah i mean with the, with the cash they're thrown off now they 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 clearly do have do have sufficient cash Uh, to be able to do this. Really, their cost at the moment um, relates directly to manufacturing, so it's about manufacturing scale-up. They do have the ability to do that. They're not ramping up quite as quickly as uh, Pfizer, for example. Pfizer and their partner BioNTech are talking about 2.5 billion doses this year and at least three next year, whereas Moderna is down at a slightly lower number this year, about 800 million to a billion but on both sides, they're ramping up quite aggressively. Cash is not the key issue today, but you're ab- absolutely right to focus on it, that it was in prior years an issue. And the one thing probably that this has done for both Moderna and, and BioNTech, which actually you know, established the, the technology on the other side that Pfizer is uh, is partnering with, that, this really has accelerated them probably eight to 10 years ahead of time. They got cash. They were able to push projects forward. And now they have uh, established proof of concept as well. So it's a very, very different story to what it might have otherwise been without COVID.
7: Really, really interesting conversation. We never talk about Moderna as like a stock. I feel like we're just talking about it in terms of the actual vaccine. So that was really fun uh, to do. Thank you so much, John Murphy, Bloomberg Intelligence Pharmaceutical Analyst.
4: All right, let's turn our attention to the aluminum market. We're seeing gains across a lot of the base metals. What does it mean for the stocks, particularly Alcoa? We now turn to Bloomberg Intelligence Metals and Mining Senior Analyst, Andrew Cosgrove. You know, a lot of folks are taking a look at these metal companies. We're seeing some inflation, some rise in prices out there across some of those base metals. When you talk about a company like Alcoa, how do you value some of these big companies?
11: Well, yeah, I mean, Alcoa is a... You know, one of the largest aluminum producers in the U.S. and and in the world, really. Um, Principally, they, they have an aluminum segment and they have an alumina segment. Alumina is the precursor to aluminum. So the way that we kind of approached it, especially in this price environment, in our scenario analysis, we kind of ran it in spot, mild lift, and then kind of a high bull case. And then we also did a sum of the parts. Main takeaway is that the company is essentially undervalued, even if you just assume spot aluminum prices in perpetuity. But we can get into maybe some more scenarios and dig in deeper if you want.
7: Okay. Go. Yeah. Go nerdy, so, man. I've, this is Bloomberg Intelligence. Yeah. Let's do this.
11: All right. So, um, <laughs> you know, if, if we, we look at a scenario analysis, even just at spot prices, which, you know, our view is that aluminum prices will be much higher 12 to 24 months from now. and That's mainly because China's capping capacity. And it's really a cheap way to play the copper rally. It's a less crowded trade as the copper trade is. So, you know, most people look at aluminum as a substitute for copper, and it is in in a lot of different cases. So Alcoa is a second derivative way of playing a copper uh, bull market. And so the way that we looked at aluminum is just saying, specifically for Alcoa, they're in a unique position because they can massively delever at current spot prices. And... The one nice thing about how the business is set up right now is that their alumina segment has very high tax rates. It's um, mm-hmm. about thirty to forty percent. And the nice thing about what's happening now is the alumina segment is alumina prices are down, and so earnings are also down. But when alumina prices are down, aluminum margins uh, expand, and because aluminum prices are high and input costs are stable, you have expansion in the aluminum segment. And what's nice about that is that they have, they pay no cash taxes in the aluminum segment because they have massive net operating losses from years before when aluminum prices were very low. So in, in the order of 1.7 billion. So over the next few years, they're not even going to pay any cash taxes in that segment, which just basically gooses the free cash flow that is going to drop back to the bottom line.
4: All right, Andrew. Like most of your research reports that I read, there's lots of numbers in there, lots of data, <laughs> lots of calculations, lots of valuations. I look at some of the parts, and you're calling for sixty to eighty dollars a share. Yet yeah, when I type in on my Bloomberg terminal, AA Equity Go—that's the ticker for Alcoa—I get a stock price below
11: forty. What do you think the street's missing out there? Right. So, um, yeah, the other way we came about it was essentially is to figure out what the street is valuing the aluminum business today. And our best guess is it's valuing it somewhere below, you know, three x EBITDA. If you look at uh, the, the closest pure play comparable, which is Century Aluminum, another U.S. based producer, like um, mid cycle multiple is somewhere around six to seven. So if we use that as our kind of target multiple, which which we think is somewhat conservative, I'll get to that in just a second. Essentially over the course of the next two years in various different scenarios you can it spits out a price somewhere between sixty and, and in a bull case if aluminum gets to twenty seven hundred could be as high as eighty. Now, if you use century as a as a proxy, you could say that okay, century trades at seven. We figure the target multiple for co is at six because the conglomerate discount, you don't get that pure play torque. But the other thing about it, especially in the world of growing ESG concerns and carbon, um, you could argue that one should value Alcoa's smelting business more so than Centuries because of its very um, clean or less carbon-intensive power sources, i.e. most of their smelters are are powered by hydro, um, either in Canada or in Iceland. So that's another reason why you could say that. What you're looking at here is somewhat conservative.
7: Talking about the beta, real quick in general. So that's a drill down for Alcoa, <laughs> but for a lot of these uh, metal guys, with the underlying commodity price is jams higher, can you jam higher, soars higher? What happens to the stock? Like, what's the beta to the stock to the underlying commodity?
11: Yeah, I mean, um, another way we also look at it is we model spot EBITDA, and for commodity companies, it's, it's relatively easy. It's um, in the beta, it means it's, it tracks pretty closely. Um, you know, over time it might disconnect from spot prices or Midwest premiums, which are the the price you tack on to the LME price. But by and large, over time, um, the stock will typically trade in concert with commodity prices. All
4: right, what's the uh, the bear case here, real quickly, Andrew, for Alcoa?
11: Yeah. So the bear case would be that um, you know our bullish thesis on aluminum does not materialize and. I guess the the main pushback would just be China does somewhat of a U-turn in terms of capping smelting capacity mm-hmm. and not, um, you know, not being the or continuing to be the exporter of deflation that they've been over the last decade, um, especially in aluminum China supplied. Um, exports to the tune of 5%, 10% of of ex-China demand, and that's kind of capped or been a main reason why Alcoa smelters have lost money in the past, but Mm -hmm. now that's been flipped on its head. China's capping capacity, and they're presumably not going to be exporting as much as they were. Um, But, you know, Anything can happen in China, so
4: um, I (laughs) He's like, that's the
7: bear case, but I'm not wrong. All right, Andrew, (laughs) thanks (laughs) a lot. I really love chatting with you. Uh, Andrew Cosgrove, metals and mining senior analyst over at Bloomberg Intelligence.
4: That's this week's edition of Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries.
7: Remember, you can access Bloomberg Intelligence through BI Go on your terminal. I'm Alex Steele.
4: And I'm Paul Sweeney. It's 57 minutes past the hour, and this
11: is Bloomberg.